Please be seated. Our Lord Jesus, I ask you now to glorify yourself in our midst. Show yourself mighty to save. Set the captives free. For there are many, many in this room who are in bondage to fear, to sin, and some perhaps even to Satan. Set us free. Let the word now come with power. And let it give what it promises, that we may experience the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Ask this now in the name of Christ. Amen. The passage of Scripture to which we come this morning is a gospel text. What I mean by that is that it is just dense with good news. It's full of promises. In the span of five verses, I count four massive truths. Each one would have been enough in itself for us to have spent an entire week unpacking its implications. Each one significant in itself to produce unshakable joy in the hearts of those who are courageous enough To believe them. But we're going to deal with all four this morning. And I want to give the four up front. I want to show you the foundation on which they rest. And then we'll unpack each truth along with its massive implications. Those four truths are these. Number one, you do not have to fear the devil. Number two, You do not have to fear death. Number three, you do not have to fear the judgment. And number four, you do not have to fear temptation. Specifically, the temptation to fall away. You do not have to fear that you are not going to make it. Now the chances are high that nearly everyone in this room, if not everyone in this room, is to one degree or another a slave to one or more of these four fears. We are born into this world in absolute bondage to fear. Fear dominates and characterizes our life. We live from fear to fear. We act out of fear. Our relationships with one another are, are marked by fear. Infants startle at a sudden noise. Just walk up to one and clap and they'll start wailing. It's actually kind of fun. Toddlers fear being separated from their parents. I dare you to drop one of them off for the first time back in one of these rooms and just step out of sight and listen to what happens. They're afraid you're not coming back. Children are afraid of the dark. Teenagers are afraid of being different and not fitting in. Adults just graduate into more grown-up fears. We fear losing our job. Fear that the other shoe is 
going to drop and we won't be able to make our mortgage payments and we'll have to move and any host of other things that cascade on from what we're afraid is going to happen. And as we grow older, we begin to feel increasingly afraid of the ever-encroaching reality of death. Most people spend their entire lives just shrinking from shadow to shadow, slinking from fear to fear. Sometimes the fear is real and identifiable. More often than not, it's just some nameless dread caused by a world that is outside of our control. And the good news of this passage is that Christ Jesus has appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil and set you free from the devil's chief weapon, which is fear. So I invite you this morning to receive the truth of this passage and pray along with me that God would use it to put steel in your spines and courage in your heart. Because Christians... The elect of God and the redeemed of Christ Jesus ought to be, according to this passage, the most fearlessly daring, death-defying people in this world. And this morning, I want to show you why. A couple of weeks ago, I spent three days in downtown Minneapolis. Now, Minneapolis is not New York City or Chicago by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but to this southwest Missouri boy... It's got a lot of really tall buildings, and I was smack in the middle of it, and and looking up at the tallest of these buildings, which is the IDS Tower, which soars 57 stories, or 792 feet above street level, I became aware of how big it is and how small I am, and I have the propensity when I get in large cities, and the Osho boy that I am, to walk around with my head up like this, and I'm liable to either walk into street, to the street or to run into oncoming traffic. Luckily, I have friends there who keep me from doing such things. Now, I, I know next to nothing about architecture. I, I couldn't even build a shed in my backyard if I wanted to, let alone construct a 60-story building in the middle of a major metropolitan area. But I do know this. Any building of any kind must rest upon a suitable foundation which is strong enough to support its structure. In other words, the the higher a skyscraper soars, the, the deeper its foundation must go in order to support its majestic height. The stronger the foundation must be in order to uphold its massive weight. For instance, I did a little bit of research. The Empire State Building, been up at the top of it actually, uh, which totally blew my mind. The tallest building in Neosho is four, four stories high. It's the Ratliff feed, feed Store down off the square. The Empire State Building, on the other hand, tops out at a dizzying 1,224 feet. 1,454 if you count the lightning rod. That's how high it is up. Now, if you go underneath, you will find that it goes down 55 feet deep into the bedrock that lies underneath Manhattan. Its foundation is much deeper than the tallest building in the town I grew up. 
And it is this deep and strong foundation resting on the immovable bedrock below that allows a building the size and the scale of the Empire State Building to span 100 stories into the clouds without crumbling into a a mass of granite and steel. Even so, I would tell us that the soaring truths that we're going to unpack this morning, they rest upon a deep and strong foundation, and that foundation is the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, incarnation is a word that's fallen out of usage, but shouldn't. It's an important word. It's a Bible word. It's a theological word that speaks to the event of the eternal Son of God becoming flesh or becoming incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the incarnation is a profound mystery that cannot fully be explained. It can only be spoken of in terms of propositions or truth statements. The incarnation is the truth that the eternal Son of God, who has always existed with the Father and with the Spirit in Trinitarian glory and joy, became fully and really man, and yet remained fully and really God. How? (laughs) I don't know. That's where the mystery comes in. That's why we have creeds and confessions. All we can do is repeat the words, for instance, of the Apostles' Creed, which says that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Or the words of the Nicene Creed, those carefully chosen words that were forged in the fires of the Christological controversies of the 4th century church, which states that the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Who? For us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. (laughs) Those two massive statements meet in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Or we could quote the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. You are going to conceive in your natural womb a natural man. Mary says, how can this be, seeing as how I'm a virgin? And the angel explains, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason... The holy child shall be called the Son of God. Son of man, Son of God, Jesus our Lord. It's the incarnation of the Son of God that provides the foundation strong enough to hold up these four truths. And this is clear from the structure of the passage. I want to point it out to you. I want you to see it in verses 14 to 18. The passage contains two parallel statements of the incarnation, one in verse 14 and the other in verse 17. Each statement opens up into two effects of the incarnation, two purpose statements. Those are marked off by the word, so that he became incarnate, so that these two things would happen. Verse 17, he became incarnate, so that these two things would happen. And that's where we get our four truths. So look at the first statement, verse 14. Therefore, since the children, that's us, 
Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. To what effect? The result of his partaking of the same flesh and blood as the children is that he has disarmed Satan, verse 14, and has set free those who were slaves to the fear of death, verse 15. You see it? It's only because he became man and yet remained God. Or in verse 17, the second statement, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. The result being that by becoming like us in all things, he has become a merciful and faithful high priest who makes propitiation for the sins of his people and makes intercession for us before the throne of his Father. He is able to come to the aid of us when we are tempted. Here's how I might summarize verses 14 to 18 and how the foundation of the incarnation holds up the skyscraper of these four truths today. God cannot die. Only man can die. And we needed a Savior who could die our death in our place. So Jesus partook of flesh and blood in order that he might die and rise again. God cannot be tempted, James 1.13. Only man can be tempted. And we needed a Savior who could step into our place and endure temptation in a real, visceral, human way. On the other hand, man cannot be holy. Only God can be holy. And we needed a Savior who could not only be tempted... But in the perfection of his sinlessness and in the innocence of his righteousness could overcome and would not succumb to the temptation. But could succeed where Adam had failed. He could succeed where all of us have failed. Really tempted as he was really man, but really holy as he was really God. What we needed, beloved, was a God-man. And that's what we have in Jesus. All that we're about to read is possible only because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation is the foundation of the Gospel. So if anybody ever comes to you and tries to jettison the virgin birth as being unnecessary to the historic Christian faith, you tell them, be gone from me, O worker of Satan. Because I can't be saved unless Jesus became man. Now before we proceed on to the four great truths of this passage, I want to spend just a moment on verse 16. Where the writer says that assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Give help there is a rather weak translation of the verb that appears in verse 16. A better translation, maybe your Bible has it, would be lays hold of. He grasps, he assumes, he appropriates our nature, the nature of the seed of Abraham, the children, the brethren, and not angels. That's why Jesus didn't become like an angel. He became like one of us because he didn't intend to redeem the angels. His intent was to redeem us. That's what he's saying in verse 16. He came to redeem his covenant people, the seed of Abraham, and that's why he partakes of our flesh, lays hold of our nature. You may be asking yourselves, why the mention of angels at this point? 
Well, you need to remember the context in which this passage rests. In chapter 1, verses 4 to 14, the author argued for the supremacy of Christ over the angels. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he made the case that the message spoken through Jesus is greater than the message spoken through the angels. And to neglect this new covenant gospel which we've received in Christ would be to neglect the great salvation that God has provided in him. And then in verses 5 to 13, he argued that the original creation wasn't placed under the dominion of angels, but was placed under the dominion of man. And though this design of God was frustrated by the fall, it is finally realized in the man, Christ Jesus. The glory and the honor and the dominion that was lost will be and has been reclaimed through the obedience and suffering of the perfect man, the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. So what we have now in verses 14 to 18 is the final passage of this whole section that began at chapter 1 and verse 4, dealing with the supremacy of Christ over the angels. It's one further evidence That neither the original audience to whom he wrote nor us today should give undue attention or reverence to the angels. Because the angels are neither the savior of man, chapter 1 verses 4 to 13, nor are they the heirs of salvation, 114. Rather, the Savior has assumed our nature, the nature of his covenant people, the seed of Abraham, because we, not they, are the objects of his saving work. All right, that's verse 16. So now what we have, we have the foundation of the incarnation of the Son of God. We have an understanding of why this building sits here in the middle of the city of Hebrews, right? It's because he has come to redeem man and not the angels. Now we're going to look at the the four posts, all right, uh, of our building, the truths that sit on this foundation. Truth number one, you need not fear the devil. Because of the incarnations of the Son of God, you need not fear the devil. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. All right, verses in 14 and 15 are one statement. They're one sentence. The two truths that we find in those two verses are so interrelated, I really considered just dealing with them as one truth. Because the flow of thought goes like this. By his death, Jesus disarmed the devil who wielded the weapon of death. And it was by the fear of death that Satan kept the children in slavery all their lives. Right? So it's all related. But it decided to keep them separate for this reason. While the fear of death is a fear that probably every one of us share in, our lives are altered by the fear of death. The fear of Satan and of the powers of evil, even though it may not be real and tangible in this room, is a real fear for many, many people in this world. While in seminary, I remember taking a course in world missions and the professor had been on the field in Zimbabwe for eight years It was fascinating. He was this short little white guy, and he could speak a number of African languages, including some that use clicks. Strange. 
In one class, we were talking about contextualization, which is a big fancy word in missions. It means this, taking the message of the gospel and presenting it in in a way that speaks powerfully to the culture in which you're ministering. So in the West, us, our culture is so familiar and dominated and rooted in the rule of law that the language of the courtroom speaks well when we're presenting the gospel. The language of forensic or legal justification, all right? So we, we often present the gospel here in the West like this. We say that Jesus stepped into the defendant's box in our place and he bore our guilt before the bar of God's judgment and he suffered the due punishment of the law in our place while we receive his acquittal. So he gets our verdict of guilty and we get his verdict of innocent. You see how that plays? It's very courtroom-like, very legal, very law-oriented because we are a rule of law people. It probably wouldn't do well to present the gospel in the same way if we go over into the East, if we go over into Asian cultures that are not so much rooted in the rule of law, but in the principle of honor and shame. So if we were in an Asian culture, we might speak of sin, for instance, as dishonoring our Heavenly Father. And of Jesus as being our our honorable elder brother who bore our shame and gave us his honor in order that we could be reconciled to our father. And that would speak well in an Asian culture. But Dr. May, the missions professor, said, you know what speaks most powerfully in certain African cultures? Is to present Jesus as the victor who by his death and resurrection has triumphed over the powers of evil. Because in in many frontier locations where the light of the gospel has not yet penetrated, people live in fear of the demonic forces. And and, and lest in in our modern and western arrogance, we just think, well, that's just primitive thinking. That's because they haven't gotten the internet yet. They don't know better. I would just, before you say that, I would beg you to listen to some of the stories of missionaries who have taken the gospel to an unreached people group, and you ask them if the power of evil is not real. You ask them if these tribes are not held in absolute slavery by a witch doctor who has sold his soul to Satan for very real powers. You ask them if they, when they go into a tribal hut and they begin to speak the name of Jesus, if on an absolutely clear day the shutters don't start rattling. They're in fear. And for good reason. Because Satan is not called the God of this world for nothing. The fear of the demonic is real and valid and the power of darkness in such places is terrifying. And so when a missionary, when when an evangelist comes upon this field and begins to tell them that the Son of God has appeared for this purpose, that He might destroy the works of Satan and set you free from His power, they hear that as really good news. Because nothing else can save them from the powers that torment them. Finally, someone, someone who can rescue us from the pervasive and restless evil that seeks only to steal and kill and destroy. And we don't often think in such terms, but I, I would submit to you that perhaps we should. 
Yes, we live in an evangelized culture where the light of the gospel has in large manner driven back the power of darkness, but Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, namely you. And I just want you to be aware of it. I want you to be aware of the reality of evil. I want you to be aware, but not afraid. For when Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through the cross, says Colossians 2.15. That's what he's saying in chapter 2, verse 14. Through the death of the cross, which was made possible only because he partook of flesh and blood like the children... Jesus has disarmed the devil. And Satan now is a a defeated and conquered foe. Second, you need not fear death. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery All their lives. When you read through the New Testament, you're going to come across a couple of descriptions of Satan that will startle you. In in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls Satan the God of this world. It's a little surprising. It is to me. Jesus himself called Satan the ruler of this world, John 12.31. And I asked myself the question, how, how did Satan become God of this world and ruler of this world when Genesis 1.26 tells me that dominion and glory and honor were given to man and it was to man that God said rule over the earth and subdue it. The answer is found in Romans 5.12 where Paul says, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. Death through sin. And Hebrews 2 presents Satan as an evil tyrant who wields the weapon of death. And with it, he bludgeons all humanity into submission. But, as one commentator, William Lane, reminds us, quote, The devil did not possess control over death inherently. But he gained his power when he seduced humankind to rebel against God. So Satan seduced Adam into sin. Through sin, death entered the world. And now, thus holding the keys of death, Satan was able to consolidate his power upon the earth. But it bears reminding, and I don't want to be misunderstood, God did not abdicate his throne. Satan did not steal the power of death from God when he wasn't looking. God handed Satan the keys of death as a judgment upon mankind for our sin. It's part of the curse of Genesis 3. The world into which Jesus was born then looked much different than the world that he created. Rather than ruling over the earth as God's representatives and image bearers, he was born into a world in which humanity grovels at the feet of the devil like a slave, who holds the chains of our bondage, which is the power of death in his hands, and through the fear of death, gets us to do his bidding. Think about this. What 
will people not do because of the fear of death? What will they not pay to stave off that reality just a year more? What what will people not do to squeeze every last drop of pleasure out of this life because they know that one day it's all going to come to an end? I'll tell you what they'll do. They'll do whatever Satan says. But Jesus partook of flesh and blood and submitted himself to the suffering of death on our behalf in order to set us free from that kind of bondage. To set us free from our slavery to the evil one. So what is it about death that causes such fear? Why why is death so terrifying to us? Well, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We're afraid to die because we know that we've sinned, and we know that it's appointed to man once to die, and then comes the judgment. And so we know that for us, death is the gateway into the judgment where we will be found guilty for our sins and condemned and come underneath the everlasting wrath of God. That's why we fear death. That's the sting of death. That's why we fear it so, even if, even if that fear is buried so deep within our subconscious that we don't acknowledge the reality of God or the reality of sin or the reality of the law or the imminence of His judgment, it's still there, says Paul in Romans chapter 1. The truth of the matter is that there is a God, there is a law, we have sinned and we are liable to the judgment and that judgment is terrifying because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For those who are outside of Jesus, if you are outside of Christ, if you do not know Him as your liberator this morning, you should be afraid to die. But if you have a champion who has defeated death by death and who has emerged victorious on the other side in a resurrection, then death has no sting, it holds no terror. Because it's no longer the gateway into judgment. Rather, it's the gateway into the presence of Christ. And you can say to live is Christ and to die is now no longer terrifying. It's what? Gain. That's how someone speaks when they've been set free from the fear of death. Number three. You need not fear the judgment. This truth delves deeper Into why death no longer holds any terror for the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. If if you belong to the chosen seed of Israel's race, as we sing. If you belong to Abraham's spiritual descendants by faith in Christ, then you need not fear the judgment. Why? Because you have a mediator who has taken your guilt away. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right. This is our first introduction into this Jesus as our great high priest theme. We're going to unpack it in detail in chapters five to ten. All we need to know today is that the high priest performed two very important things. Functions for the people of God. Functions which are here in verses 17 and 18. He represented the people before God by making propitiation for them through the blood of a sacrifice. 
And he represented the people before God by making intercession for them and praying for them. And in order to perform both of those functions as our great high priest, it was necessary that Jesus be made like his brethren in all things. Again, the incarnation is the foundation of what we're reading. So it was the duty of the high priest once a year on the day of atonement to take the blood of the sacrifice into the holy of holies into the very presence of God, and there make atonement for the sins of the people. And the verb which the author uses here, which is, or ought to be translated, propitiation. Okay? It refers to the averting or the, the turning aside of, of God's wrath. And in later chapters, we're going we're gonna to go deep into the atonement, deep into propitiation, and we're going to find that when Jesus, as our great high priest, went between the veil, behind the veil, and brought in the blood of the sacrifice, he didn't bring in the blood of bulls and goats, which can in no way take away sin. He brought in himself his own precious blood, and with it has made atonement once and for all for all those whom he represents. It's a perfect propitiation. Because his own blood shed on the cross is infinitely righteous and infinitely valuable and infinitely precious in God's sight and is able to satisfy God's judgment and turn aside his wrath from every one of you who believes. And that's why you need not fear death. Because you need not fear the judgment. And you need not fear the judgment because Christ Jesus, your great high priest, has already gone to the altar of the cross, bearing in his body your sin and your guilt, and with his blood has made atonement or propitiation for all of your sins. Listen to me. God is not mad at you if you're in Jesus. He has no more wrath for you. There is no such thing as a partway propitiation. Either the blood of Christ has taken away all of God's wrath for all of the sins of all the people who will trust in Him, or it's taken away none of it. And verse 17, here's where the rubber meets the road for you this morning. Okay? You can walk out of here knowing that God is not mad at you, but He has only love and grace and acceptance for you. If you will believe that Jesus Christ has made propitiation for your sins. Or, you can walk out those doors and you can continue on the treadmill of works trying to earn God's acceptance because you're not really sure whether His blood is sufficient for you. I would urge you to trust in the former and not to live by the latter. The judgment holds no dread for you who believe in Jesus. Because in the sight of God, there is no sin left to your account. That is hard to believe. And I know that you're having trouble believing that. Because I wake up in the morning and I have trouble believing that. I have trouble believing that when Jesus says, I am not ashamed to call them my brethren, that he's not really disappointed. Like, I'm not the exception to that promise. He's not ashamed of you, but he's kind of wishing I hadn't been included in that number. All of your sin, all of God's wrath, all of his displeasure, 
poured out and absorbed in the body of Jesus. Grace, mercy, pleasure. God takes pleasure in you. Because of Christ. That's what the great high priest has done for you. Finally, you need not fear temptation. Because you have a great high priest who is familiar with your weakness. Who has himself endured temptation and has triumphed. And therefore he is able to come to your aid when you are tempted. To intercede for you before the throne of God. To pray your perseverance into reality. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Have you ever put yourself in the situation of somebody, hypothetically, who is being persecuted for their faith? And you, I mean, you know, you know with your head that there are people who live, for instance, Christians in northern India, and they're caught between the Hindus to the south and the Muslims to the north, and the only thing that the Hindus and the Muslims hate more than one another is... is Christians, and so they slaughter them. And have you ever wondered what, what it would be like? What would my faith remain? Is it is it actually real? And if if I'm forced, and they bring my family before me, and they they kill them in front of me, or they threaten to do so, and they say, "If only you will recant," and I would say, "To live is Christ, and to die is gain." And the greatest love I can have for my kids is to let them die in faith. Would you do it? Would you be faithful? Because sometimes I wonder. Because I'm trying to buy a house right now and I can't even be faithful in that. Keep from worrying. Jesus is off his throne and somehow we're going to not have a place to live in January. You have to be kidding me. How am I going to endure in that situation when life is on the line? Because there is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, one who is going to pray that I will endure, and his prayers are always answered by the Father, and so grace will be ushered down to me by the Spirit, and I will feel a resolve that I've never felt before in that hour, and I will say, yes, I belong to Christ, and no, I will not recant here. I stand, and I will do no other. That's what he's talking about. He was tempted in the garden. Don't endure the wrath for these people. It's too much. You can't do it. Father, if there be any other way that, that, that I could come through this without enduring your wrath and turn aside, and the answer from heaven was a silence which meant no. And see, so he endured and persevered and obeyed to the cross. And he will see that you do the same thing. You can trust him. You are not alone in your battle against sin. You, you are not alone in your battle to persevere. You are not alone in, in the war. It is true that you must fight and you must battle and you must endure and you must persevere for it's only he who perseveres to the end who will be saved. That is true, but it's not all of the truth because at the same time you are held and you are kept and you are preserved that you may persevere. And you have a great high priest who is able to save to the uttermost all those 
who draw near to God through him. Jesus will pray your perseverance into being. So if you are in Christ, you may trust that if the cancer diagnosis comes, you're not going to lose it. You're not going to be one of those who says, if this is how God treats his children, I want out. You're going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Why? Because your faith is so strong and excellent that it's better than everybody else's? Because you have a great high priest who is tempted in just that way and he will come to your aid. So don't fear. So I want to conclude this message by calling you to a fearless faith. Here's how you ought to receive this word this morning. 2,000 years ago, God breathed out this word. And he breathed it into the heart of this author. And this author wrote it down and sent it to a church. And the Spirit has preserved it down through the ages. And here we are. It's for you. And through it, the Spirit is calling you to a courageous, risk-taking, death-defying faith. And I want you to tremble with me to think, just in a couple of minutes as we conclude, just, just tremble to think of the power and the joy that would be resident in this church if we weren't so afraid of dying. If we could say with Paul, I don't care whether they kill me, I don't care whether I remain, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what if we weren't afraid to die? What if not dying weren't the goal of our life? What if instead of exhausting all of our energies and all of our resources just trying not to die, we actually believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain? What if trying to, to gain our best life now, what if instead of living like that, we lived in the knowledge that the fleeting shadows of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us? A church that lays hold of, of this truth would see its members forgoing the lake home and their plans of the good life in retirement and instead would live out the remainder of their years in eternally significant ministry. A, a church that lays hold of this truth would see members cashing in the American dream for the chance to live among unreached peoples to, to serve them and alleviate their suffering and bring them the hope of the gospel. Now why do I say this? Because the fear of death is not just the fear of dying, but it's the fear that this life is all there is. And so I must take control over it and get everything out of it and cling to it with every ounce of strength that I've got and every dollar to my name. In other words, the fear of death just breeds selfishness. And being set free breeds generosity. The one who is not afraid to die, who understands that Christ has defeated death and has won for us eternal life and joy, will generously expend his life doing that which will make him and others happy in a thousand years. To be free from death is to be free to truly live. What if we weren't afraid of the judgment? 
What if we actually believe that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest who has offered himself as the propitiation for our sins and God has accepted it as evidenced by the fact that he raised his son from the dead? What if we could walk out those those doors this morning and live out our days in the knowledge that God is not mad at us and that he has no more wrath for us and that, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren? And I'm not talking about a false a false assurance that has no foundation in the truth. I'm talking about a real atonement and real blood on a real cross that has real foundations in the real God and man. I'm talking about reality. No wrath. Can you imagine the joy and the freedom and the assurance that would permeate the hearts of this church? Can you imagine what worship would be like on a Sunday morning? There would be no more half-hearted mumbling our way through the songs that we like. This this sanctuary, this gymnasium, would, would just explode with worship of the joy of the freedom of the children of God. Free. God's not mad at me. All of my sins gone. He could strike me dead right now and I would die the happiest man on earth. full-voiced, expressive, emotive praise of a heart set free from guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. And that's what I want from us. And that's what Jesus wants from us. And that's what he deserves from us. So I ask you this morning, what are you afraid of? What, What fear is stealing your joy? Because whatever fear that is, turn the rock over and you will find a lack of faith. You afraid of Satan? Don't be. There is nothing that he can do for you, and he can do a lot of stuff to you. He can make you sick. He can take your life. Revelation 2, Satan is about to throw some of you into prison, and you'll have tribulation for 10 days, and then you will die. He can take your life. But there's nothing that he can do, strike you with cancer or kill you dead, that does not work out for your ultimate salvation. Are you afraid to die? By his death, Jesus has wrenched from Satan's scaly fingers the keys of death and hell, and he has transformed death from the gateway to judgment into the gateway to eternal life. So we don't have to fear. Are you afraid of judgment? Christ has offered a perfect propitiation for your sins. There is no sin that remains unatoned for. Are you afraid of temptation, suffering, persecution, falling short, not finishing the race? Nothing can befall you that Christ has not first endured and overcome and for which he will not supply the grace and the strength necessary to make it to the end and to receive the crown of life. In all of these fears and a thousand more, I invite you this morning to take them and present them at the feet of a merciful and faithful high priest who is Jesus our Lord. You can trust him. Let's pray. My father, I... I preach this way this morning because I want to be set free. 
I feel like I'm preaching for my own freedom and for the freedom of this flock that you have given me. So I pray that you will set your people free. Take away the fear of death. Death is gain. Take away the fear of judgment. Grant them a rock-solid assurance that is rooted in the atonement of Christ, which is perfect and everlasting. Take away the fear of the, of the evil one. And all of the fiery darts that he can send and the prowling around like a roaring lion that he does. Help us to think of him as Martin Luther thought of him, as a lion on a leash. And for others, it's just the nameless fear of a world out of our control, a loss of a job or a loss of a house or, a, or not measuring up or not being good enough as if, as if you were not on your throne ruling all things by the word of your power. So what I pray for today is I pray that faith will descend by the power of the Spirit and will drive out the darkness of fear. Or in the words of 1 John 4, there is no fear of love, for fear has to do with judgment and perfect love casts out fear. So flood the hearts of your people with love and faith. In a big God and a sufficient Savior, a merciful and faithful High Priest. So to the people this morning, I invite you to surrender your fears, whatever they may be. And in just a moment of quiet, lay them at the feet of your High Priest. Let him who holds the sword of the word in his hand slay every one of them. What are you afraid of? the one who's here who is afraid of the judgment. I invite you to trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Take your sins. By faith, place them upon Jesus at the cross. By faith, take from him the righteousness that he offers to clothe you in and surrender yourself to him. Jesus, finish your work by your spirit in the hearts of every one of your people. Make us strong. Make us faithful. Make us fearless. We ask in Jesus' name.